This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today, I have another one of the HITS partners on the show today. I have Jeff Barrett. Um, I think if you guys have listened to the question and answer shows, you've heard uh, Jeff uh, give some of the answers for the shows. I brought him on today to talk about patrol dog issues, similar to what we did with Andy Wyman. Uh, Andy has an extensive history with uh, detection dogs. Jeff has done patrol dogs and also detection dogs, but um, definitely specialized probably uh, in patrol dogs, has been doing this for 25 or 30 years and a good person to pick his brain uh, just to find out what are some common mistakes that Jeff has uh, seen over the years and what's changed in our industry on the patrol dog side of things. So I brought Jeff on to, uh, to kind of get some, get some good feedback and also to see, you know, if there's things that you could think about what you, maybe you could be doing better just by uh, learning from some of the mistakes he's made over the years. So, uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. You know, a few years back, we wrote about this uh, short article in the, we did. In the uh, hits. I think it was the... the uh, it was called it the Hits uh, Online uh, Advertising yeah. Supplement or similar yeah. to a magazine. I'll put the link to that in the show notes here if anybody wants to, to check it out. Yeah, so, so I picked out five of the most common that I thought, uh, you know, people over the years have talk to me about and the first one and it really- before we get to that let me let me interrupt you real quick before we get to that let's talk for a minute just about about jeff barrett for a minute you've been doing this for how many years now? Oh, i'm in my 31st year so i'll retire at the end of this year but uh 33 of my uh police career have been uh, or 31 of my police career has been spent of my 33 with, with a leash in your hand i've worked 10 of them i've worked uh Malinois, Malinois, German Shepherd mixes, and German Shepherds. So I've. And they've all been uh, dual yeah, purpose dogs, I assume. We, we work the patrol side and then we work the detector side for uh, narcotics. So our unit has uh, 10 and, dogs. And I, I know. I, yeah, and I know the part of Florida you work, you guys, you guys stay busy. So over the years, You've been involved in a, a lot of a lot of canine apprehensions and deployed a lot of different patrol dogs, both as probably a trainer overseeing the new teams, and obviously with your own dogs or yourself and everything. So this isn't uh, uh, what you're going to talk about. isn't Isn't just uh, something that you heard about. These are things that you've you've been through. Yeah, right? over the years, these things that uh, I'm going to talk about today, I've experienced for myself, and I've sat back and wondered, you know, how did these things happen and why. And I started picking the, the brains of the, the senior handlers and senior trainers that uh, I've been around over the years. And uh, even now, uh, I still, you know, pick up the phone and talk to people about weird sure. things that have happened. And uh, the commonalities are the same across sure. the board. We all seem to uh, experience a lot of the same things. So, you know, I thought, well, you know, I get, I get the same questions a lot of times throughout the schools that I run. Yeah. And uh, let's you know bring these together in a, a format that people can listen to, read about, and understand a little bit more. And a lot of times they'll go, you know, I think I've experienced that, and 
now I understand a little yeah. bit more about why it's happened to me as well. So, uh, I think when we did the article, when I had you write it for that uh, advertising supplement we were doing, I think the way I described it is if you and I are sitting down having a beer, just uh, trading some more stories or something, you know, what, how, what would come up and, and that's kind of, where yeah. And that's exactly what comes ones. up. You know, you sit around and you talk to the guys and you find the younger guys listening to your stories and they're nodding their head because they've been there and, you know, they want to hear how it yeah. was fixed or whether it was fixable at all. And that's some of the things that. Exactly. And that's what I've always been kind of, I like to, uh, I like to talk to guys about not the war story about who you caught or what, what, you know, how great your dog did, but I like to talk to them about, uh, you know, what went right, what, what didn't go right, how you remediated and training. And, you know, that's where I think the real value comes from a lot of the networking, you know, at, at hits that we do when, when you go out and have dinner with people you don't know. And, uh, the ones who are open and honest that, you know, we've all had, all had problems on the street and all had problems in training. And, uh, when we can be real open and share that kind of stuff, I think that's where we get better. Oh yeah. You know, it's always positive when you, everything works out just right. And then, uh, you know, the failures, uh, just like you said, yeah. really are uh, what we're looking to learn from because each time that we have something that this doesn't go the way it was planned, uh, we sh- and we should be looking at it, you know, Briefing our debriefing ourselves and debriefing each other and going, you know, this is uh, something we could probably absolutely create in training uh, the next training day and see who's having the issue and start trying to address it through training. Absolutely. So, what would you say would be like one of the first? And these aren't in any particular order, but uh, what would be the first uh, topic you'd want to discuss? That's real common with uh, you know the first dogs? thing that. Uh, that pops up is poor dog selection. We try and we struggle to solve problems that sometimes just aren't solvable through training and that's poor genetics. Uh, the, the bottom line is one of the guys that I trained with years ago, he said, I just can't make chicken salad out of chicken shit. And, and it's so true. If, if <laughs> you don't have the product, a lot of times it's just never going to come to fruition for you. And it's, you know, sure. but people are also quick to blame the dog and poor genetics on problems when a, a lot of them are training issues. But you have to really understand sure. what you're looking at when you're picking these dogs and develop a good relationship with the people that you buy them from, understand your contract, what you can get for a replacement. Should it be replaced? And how much time and money is invested? And that's sure. the biggest thing is time is money for us. So. You know, when we buy dogs, we have yeah. that expectation that they're going to work at least a, a, a fair degree. You know, that and when I say fair degree, I mean fair by contract. Are you, gonna, are you getting some yeah. uh, genetically unworkable dog? And that's the biggest one. Proper dog selection. And, and exactly. And, that, and to be fair, that can come up sometimes. You can do a, a fantastic selection test and... For whatever reason, and we, you and I have both seen it, you know, the dog's uh, in a month or two, some quirk comes up about the dog. And um, I think sometimes people are are hesitant to cut bait and say, you know, this just isn't going to be the right dog for the this time. program. Yeah, we uh, and, and there's nothing there's nothing uh, wrong with, with talking, you know, if you've got a good vendor, there's nothing wrong with talking to the vendor and saying, here's the issue I have. See if the vendor has any solution because they want you to have a good dog too. And if not, any quality vendor um, will exchange the dog. And I think um, not being a vendor myself, but talking to them, I think most of them want the dog back sooner rather than later so they can 
work on the issue themselves yeah, take, and get know, the dog they, back they, in. The they don't want you to do, uh, keep going down that path. Something happened like you break a tooth and they don't want the dog back at all. You know, you're trying to sure. train the dog and it breaks a tooth. And he's pretty much yours at that point. And, and you and I both have been in, in uh, been fortunate enough that the canine programs we have uh, worked in are, are a little bit larger. And, you know, we've been, we were fortunate to start off with people who had been around a lot longer than us. So we kind of um, learned how to selection test dogs, you know, through, through larger agencies and stuff. But the smaller agencies, uh, and I know you've done this, if a smaller agency called you and said, you know, we're a new agency or we have one relatively inexperienced handler, can you come help us? That, that would never be a problem for you to go and, and assist somebody to get another. No, to, and I can't the tell right you how many times that's happened. It, it, I get calls um, sometimes weekly, sometimes just, uh, you know, one call a month and people say, Hey, we have yeah. this issue. What do you think about training? Uh, just two or three days ago, uh, yeah. I talked for an hour on the phone with a guy that was having some training issues with a dog and he was wondering, you know, is this something that we can work on and fix, or do you think it's just a genetic problem? And, um, I think these questions come up about genetics yeah. uh, these days because the dogs are so young. And so it's not necessarily a genetic problem, but a, a yes. maturity problem. And so we think, well, this dog doesn't have it yep. genetically because we looked at another dog that was a year old, 13 months old, and he was doing just right. Everything was perfect with the dog. And so you're comparing yeah. one to another based on yeah. that. But really, it's the dog's age. And what happened is if you try to take him back or you do take him back and you get another dog, most of the time the vendor's just going to let that dog decompress in the kennel for a while, work him up slowly mature. and let him mature. And that dog will be working someplace else. So it wasn't necessarily a genetic problem. Yeah. Poor dog selection. You know, and, and we've made errors as well yeah. in uh, pairing people with dogs. So sure. Um, my issue is, is if I don't know the person yep. that's coming into my unit, it's so hard to pick the dog's personality and match it up. There's been times when I've gotten weaker dogs uh, in confidence, thinking that the handler would uh, be able to work him, but it was a strong handler. And so the strong handler was too overbearing for that dog. And yeah. you have to make that good pairing with the personalities yeah. of the dogs and the people to get a good match. And so it's still not poor genetics. It's sure. just that we've made that poor match. Not, sometimes it's right. not the right dog. We see that time and time again. Right handler. So if you know the person, um, and especially if you've yeah. got a handler that's worked dogs already, you know what he's capable of. You know what his mindset is. He's going to be overbearing on the dog. Yeah. So you, maybe you want to get a, a stronger wheeled dog for that type of person that can you know, tolerate all the pressures that's going to be put on. The next one, and uh, I got two that kind of dovetail into each other, and, and it's inadequate transition training. So we do all the training to get certified. We know exactly what certification is going to bring for our patrol dogs. So we do the training to achieve that goal. And then the other that does it, dovetails into it, is the what I term as the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde theory, where uh, your training didn't transition into street work, so you had a failure. Dog didn't recognize what was going on on the street and say, I understand mm -hmm. this. This is acceptable. So the street scenarios weren't played out enough. And then the handler starts being that Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Sure. Hyde. I don't see the person in the handler you know, from the dog standpoint. Overreacted. You reacted in a way that's yep. 
normal for you under stress when you're in a fight with somebody or trying to make an arrest. You're loud, you're inflectional with your voice, and all of a sudden, dog's freaking out because you're yelling at a bad guy. He says, I've heard that voice before when I've been scolded and corrected. I don't want to be a part of this. I'm stressed out. So he's out the door. And so those transitional training uh, scenarios are so important to do your best to get this dog to see in every picture. Obviously, you're not going to see every picture, but you're going to try to expose the dog to so many scenarios and so many different looks at making apprehensions, seeing your behavior, how you react. So essentially, if you're yelling at people on the street to get down, show their hands, put their hands, all those commands that you're giving that bad guy, do it it in training so the dog hears it, he sees your reactions to it. He can animate throwing strikes, tackling, wrestling a person. All that animation applies to what he's going to see when you actually do get into the struggle with it. It's so important that those dogs. Yeah, I think in a in a perfect world, uh, I, I like the idea that maybe a new team gets certified and then they still don't work the street for one, maybe two weeks. And all you do then is scenario training, including putting a decent amount of stress on yeah. the handler to let exactly them see right. what, what happens when they got to change ideas and and change stuff and keep, yeah, that way the the training for the um, certification part is out of the handler's head. They know they're good to go. They just have to get over the next hump of uh, demonstrating that their, you know, their mind is in the game to go back. And, you know, they've been a dog trainer for two or three months. Now they got to get ready to be a cop. Yeah, again. and one of the, the hardest things to do, you know, a lot of times you'll find people in homes, uh, in different places that are real. Yeah. That's hard to duplicate in training. So, you know, if you've got, uh, let's say, for example, the the real scenario is that the home's full of pets, dirty clothes, it smells like people. It's the real yeah. deal. Whereas in training, how often do you actually get that set up where there's yeah. pet odors, yeah. pets available, you know, in cages, that yeah. sort of thing. And then all the stuff that's actually in a home. You know, typically our yeah. training areas are uh, not as cluttered with stuff. It doesn't smell the same. So if you can duplicate that, um, one of our training days a few months ago, we just uh, brought one of the heavy-duty transport uh, dog crates out, put one of our dogs in it, Uh just set it up in a doorway where the dogs had to jump over it. And uh, you'd be surprised at the number of dogs that just wanted to avoid the other dog. So, you know, we had to actually show the decoy on the other side before the dogs would jump over and search further. So it's a, you know, a stage step-by-step process where the dogs see the decoy, jump over the other dog in the crate to make the apprehension. But just simple things like that. uh, Yeah. A real simple thing that maybe some people aren't, aren't as open-minded about, but I'm pretty much a dog person. So it never bothered me, but more than once I've given up my house you know, on a training day, you know, we'll go do a few uh, searches inside my yeah. own house. You know, not not for my dog, obviously, but all the other dogs, they don't know the yeah. house. So that's a, a, a easy way to get a, you know, a lived in house with dog odors and everything else. So it uh, there, there's pretty good, easy solutions if you think outside the box a little bit. Just the other day, uh, our one of our vets here in town had a burglary at the business. And uh, I went down with the dog. Uh, 
felt like nobody was in it. For some reason, the alarm didn't get set off. I think they just smashed the front door out with more of evangelism. But I took the dog in on a long line to clear it only because I wanted to expose my dog to that vet's office and all the odors in there. There's actually a a big yellow cat that uh, is an office cat that just uh, is loose in there. And uh, the dog saw the cat in the next room and I could tell that he saw it, but he wanted to ignore that room as if, you know, I'm not going to go over there. I don't want to be a part of whatever was going on with that animal. I don't know that the dog's ever seen a cat because of his reaction. So I guided him toward the cat and he creeped up on it. You could tell he was so interested and they were <laughs> nose to nose. And uh, The cat walked off and the dog's like, I don't know what that was. but So I wanted to expose him more for the training aspect of it than anything else. And every time I kind of caught him, yeah. you know, sniffing around where animals were, I would just correct that and try to get him to encourage him to go search for a human. How much of uh, his productivity was really focused on a human at that point, I don't know. But uh, at least I was able yeah. to correct him and get him you know, back on task and work. Around. And I think definitely some of the stuff on like the, the last show, we talked to Cameron Ford a lot about the science that's going on in the detection dog world. And it's showing us that uh, when you get a dog to start thinking cognitively and doing, you know, basically doing puzzles on the detection side of things, they don't need to see every puzzle. Once they learn how to solve a puzzle, then they use that part of their brain. And I think we've always done that in patrol dogs, but maybe didn't really think about the science end of it. You know, I think of the time that you and I went to uh, Illinois and we did an exposure class. You remember all the weird yeah. scenarios we set up, even though none of the scenarios we did were lifelike at all, if you will. I mean, we had dogs running through, uh, would we have about a hundred milk jugs they had to, right. to run through to, to make an apprehension, you know, right. the weird stuff like that. But definitely the idea there is we've exposed the dog to, to weird things and they were successful. Yeah. So, Hopefully, people are doing that type of training on a regular basis. And there again, it just depends on the dog and um, his personality. Some dogs will, sure. won't hesitate one second to uh, to jump through, jump over, uh, surmount whatever obstacle we, we face them with. Mm-hmm. And others might hesitate a little bit, be good this time, hesitate again the next time we expose them. So it may take... You know, 10 exposures to the same thing for one dog where uh, the next dog down the line is yeah. perfect no matter what you're throwing at him. And, uh, and I know th- thinking of that class that we did, I think besides the dogs getting better, I remember there was one handler that struggled a little bit uh, because of the reaction for the handler. The dog kind of struggled. And once, we, If you remember, we got the handler to calm down. And once, uh, once the handler calmed down, and learned, you know, how to work through these problems. I think we saw a definite improvement with the dog. So, yeah. and, and you know, our egos are our biggest uh, obstacle that we sure. have to surmount because we we live and die by the performance of our dogs. Our egos do. And uh, if we sure. could just put that on the shelf and realize that, hey, the only perfect dog is on the end of somebody else's leash, and we just have to keep training ours to get better. But uh, I had a an experience with my dog, and I got a call the other day from. A friend of mine who had the exact same experience where they had put a, a decoy in a, a wire crate and the dogs uh, were to alert to him, try to bite him, try to make the apprehension. And my dog had a failure where he just thought that the guy was part of the scenario, uh, not a target to make yeah. an apprehension or alert to. And uh, the handler that called me had the same experience. And the trainers were of the opinion that it was poor genetics. and 
I know that that can be a, a, an issue for it, but it's yeah. not a permanent solution. You know, it's not a detriment to the point where yeah. you have to send that dog back. To me, it's yeah, it's not that dog's not as genetically superior to where he's going to look for a man to pick a fight with and make that apprehension. Uh, he's the type. Yeah, we we pick social animals, right. you know. So so. It, to me, it's a matter of exposing the dog, showing the dog, hey, this is the person you're looking for. Uh, maybe it takes a little agitation from that guy, a few runoffs, so that the, dog, the guy escapes from the cage, do a slow runoff, he doesn't get the apprehension, and uh, bring him back and expose him maybe to the exact same thing and see what happens the second time. I like to do the long line so yeah. that the dog can't leave that area. And, uh, you know, sometimes because they're... Was, was the... Was the decoy, was he covered up with anything or was he just? Uh, for mine, he was not. He open. was just in the cage and just sitting there passively. So yeah. when the dog entered the room, he's like, okay, I see this guy, but I'm looking for somebody that's truly hidden. Yeah. And so, the, you know, that exposes yeah. something that you have to think about it. Now it's a chess game. Okay. I've, somehow I've, I've yeah. fallen short in my training to expose the dog to uh, make this. I think there's a mindset too, though, to that, to that scenario because. I know like for, for me, when I've done, when I do area search scenarios, um, it's always an inaccessible, not, I should say inaccessible, a hidden right. person. Um, and I, I know one time we set up a scenario and it was a, uh, in a, some model homes and they wanted the decoy just to be sitting at one of the, the tables that, you know, the model home had put out nice patio furniture. They wanted the decoy to be sitting there and we did a muzzle. They wanted the dogs to go around the corner and hit the decoy sitting at the table. And right off the bat, I, I said that makes absolutely no sense. You know, I don't right. want to. I don't want my dog to bite the homeowner sitting at the table. I don't want that that picture in his right. mind. So it turned into a little bit of argument. Some of the guys said no, they want the passive stuff, but I want my dog to. You know, if if it's a bad guy who's sitting in a chair, you know, I'll I'll use an override command. But right. uh, I I guess I just say that because when we pick social dogs, sometimes I I think maybe they go overboard trying to. Uh, get them to, to be kind of a sharp dog that's going to go after everybody. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good thing either. Well, common sense and good judgment decisions are what's really key here. I mean, the dog's a tool sure. and, uh, you know, if we can direct the dog to do what he's supposed to do when we tell him to do it, we've accomplished our goals. But, uh, but you know, to, to your point of, you know, having the dog exposed to passive uh, apprehensions, uh, alerts where the guy's not seen. And typically that's what we do, right? We put the, the decoy yeah, or the yeah. quarry behind the door. And, uh, you know, if the guy's just sitting there, uh, we've done that in muzzle too, where we just had the guy sit there. And one of the, the, uh, yeah. the weird things that, uh, I've discovered is that, uh, if you give your canine warning and the dog doesn't have a target yet, he has to go around a corner and then find the guy and bite him. More often than not, uh, the dogs will bypass that person. Maybe they come back and you know hit, nail him when you tell uh -huh. them to, as opposed to direct line of sight. So you're looking at the guy yeah. sitting at the table, yeah. and you send the dog. You've held the dog back. He's heard the warning, so he's obviously engaged. You see that he's got target lock. When you send him, he makes you know a great apprehension on the guy's yeah. muzzle. But yeah. it's just funny that how you can go right around the corner change the look yep. of the dog uh, for the dog and yeah 
he has a different uh, reaction to it. So just a subtle, yeah. very subtle changes in the view for the dog can mean a, a difference between what you were hoping for as a success and and something that doesn't quite work out for you. So it's yeah. always nice to to change that. And what I'll see is uh, if a handler shows frustration in these moments because the dog's not performing like the guy before him and he thinks he's yeah. not as good as the next one and his ego starts to control his emotions, the dog can feel it. So you have to be an Absolutely. actor and you have to fake that, even though you're not happy with it, understand that it's not the dog's fault, yeah. but yours. You know, keep that positive attitude, try yeah. to make him understand the right thing to do. Yeah. And that's the whole Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing coming into yep. play. So you can do it in real life yeah. and in training. Yeah, and I think the best handlers are the ones that don't even have to be actors. They just are... Uh, you know, they're not intimidated by being embarrassed, you know, and they just kind of roll with it and know that dogs can be dogs sometimes and, and, you know, can be truly forgiving, you know, that, that it's not that big a deal. Let's work through, let's work through whatever problem we just saw. What, what would be the next thing you would, you would talk to about? uh, And and again, this one dovetails into the others and that's, the lack of scenario-based training where you're immersing the dog and the handler into stressful situations as much as you can to bring out those emotions and that stress. Uh, There's been many times where I have the guys uh, put on protective gear thinking that we're going to use Sims rounds. And just the fact that they're having to wear that stuff, they think they're about to get shot with the Sims rounds, automatically kicks it up a notch for them. And so it's more of a reality. And they don't know uh, what the outcome is. It's a decision. Uh, base scenario so yeah uh, we sometimes try too hard to apply a dog after all we are canine handlers right and yep. so we're always looking for that solution that incorporates the use of the dog and in reality sometimes many times uh, the use of the dog uh, isn't always the best option it can it can be a hindrance and then if you're not doing enough scenario based training then that can include the apprehension, no apprehension, no deployment at all, where you're actually having to go hands-on or go sure. uh, you know, to your guns. So all those scenario-based training is causing you to make decisions faster. And the more you fail in training, it causes the, the decisions to be made more right more often. And it, yeah, it's just an I immeasurable um, value to do scenario-based training and then debrief everyone. And so, you know, after the training, you say, well, I did this right, I did that wrong. Uh, the next time that that happens, um, maybe I'll do it faster, maybe I'll do it more right. Uh, and uh, yeah. those, I see those decisions, especially when we do uh, tactical tracking classes where uh, the, I'll play role of bad guy, I'll present myself from a distance, and the handlers are then uh, forced to make a decision. Do I send the dog for the apprehension or do I wait? And what will happen is if they wait too yeah. long, I can make it to a point of cover, uh, pick up a rifle, and now they're rushing over to help the dog and I start picking them off yeah. with the rifle. Yeah. Uh, whereas, um, you know, there's so many things to evaluate. What's next to the guy? Can I close this distance, make this apprehension uh, safely, or do I let him go and start yeah. tracking him again? And it's yep. right or wrong. I mean, we, we need to talk about it as handlers and, and as a group. So everybody. And I, I think it ties directly into what we were just 
we're, oh, we were just talking about too with the handler that that doesn't get mad, you know, with the dog. It it goes that ego thing that it's real important as a handler to be able to stand in front of your peers and either let them tell you what you did wrong or own up to what you did wrong and not have the ego of of getting getting mad just because uh, you didn't look perfect in a scenario. And and I think over overall, most of the handlers are are pretty good at that. Um, some some takes a while to to learn it, but uh, I'm sure you've been around the ones that uh, I've seen it where it can almost bring a whole unit down where nobody wants to do the hard scenario training because one or two of the handlers are going to get butt hurt. And then it just makes for an awkward, you know, crappy training night. So then they just avoid yeah, that. That's exactly right. I'm sure you've, you've seen that too. Yeah, I'm sure it's, it's easier to do what you think you're good at and to avoid you yeah. know, making a mistake on the stuff that you're not so good at, but that's the way we get yeah. better is that we work on those things uh, and we work on them as a group. So um, there's so many opinions and I'm always open to the guys giving suggestions because I only have one and one opinion. And if those yeah. guys see something different, a lot of times it's a great idea. Um, Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And any unit or training group or whatever is only as good as, you know, that weakest team because you're all going to be together on that big call. So I think uh, when you set up these scenarios, um, I think everybody needs to run through them. That's exactly right. And then, you know, I see a lot of guys that's even worked uh, the street for three or four years, and their basic training uh, is dog training and not so much scenario-based, meaning that uh, there's times when they need to stay behind cover, use cover, but yeah. they are yeah. deploying in my scenarios in the advanced training uh, under the the, tr- the same training ideas and techniques that you would use in uh, the first three or four weeks of a basic school, you know, where you're yeah. always running yeah. in to, uh, to help the dog. And in some cases, that's yeah. just a deadly setup, you know, and if you've not trained Absolutely. to stay behind cover, work that dog from behind cover, and you're just always yeah. running in. That's it's just a matter of time before you run into somebody that you didn't realize was laying on a gun or was in his other hand. Yep. So, all those things. Okay. What would be the the last? What would be the last thing that you would talk about? Uh, well, it's uh, the lack of handlers uh, being the supporter and the manager uh, of what's going on. So you have to have the wherewithal and not be so um, focused in on. The, the dog having a bite. So you have to manage what's going on with that dog. Sure. And uh, otherwise you're going to be disappointed in, uh, you know, his performance. He, sure. He, especially for guys that have never had a bite before and the dog's taking a, a crappy little nip and you're still struggling to get this guy under control. There's nothing wrong with saying bite, you know, telling the dog to bite, encouraging yeah. the dog, even if he's on it, reinforcing it. Good. Good dog, you know, letting him know that what he's doing, even though it doesn't feel right, doesn't taste right, it's a little different than what we're seeing in training. This is still what needs to happen, and you're doing a good job. So you have to be able to manage that, de-escalate your uses of force, escalate your use of force if you need to, but being that supporter of that dog, what he's doing is the right thing, and then managing, being able to manage that dog and as well as whatever's happening in those incidents, you know, manage those things. Which I think, you know, when you sum up all of this, I think obviously 
selecting the proper dog and doing, you know, good solid foundation training, but it seems like everything else ties into doing good scenario training because you learn to be a good manager in those stressful times and learn how to support the dog and, and do those things all when you're doing scenario training at the beginning. Too. That's exactly right. And so whoever's setting up those scenarios, uh, if they can immerse you into the stress of what the scenario is, hopefully you'll expose your demeanor as it would be in a real world so that the dog will see that and say, okay, this is just part of the positive. His, you know, he's yelling, yeah. he's inflectual. I can tell a change in his body posture, a change in his voice. All those things aren't negative, but yet they're positive. So the dog can key off of those things. If you do it in training and you do it in real life, the intent there is that the dog will see it, understand that it's a positive and not react in a negative way by backing out and saying, I don't want a part of this. I'm looking for a place to get away from you because who you yeah. are anymore. And as much as possible, I, I think uh, doing these scenarios and doing these training with other training groups is just paramount. The dog is to, to find other people, other decoys as opposed to everybody in your unit. Um, they set up scenarios that are just different than what, you know, cause they've done, they've had different experiences. So their scenarios are challenging in other ways that maybe you haven't even thought of. So I always encourage people to to have regular training groups and, and contact with all the agencies in their area so they can just call up, even if it's an agency they don't normally train with, call them up and say, hey, in the next two months, let's get together. We've got some cool scenarios and maybe invite them over, run them through some of your scenarios and hope that they reciprocate that to you. You know, fairly That's exactly soon. right. And a lot of dogs will feed off of, the training day itself. They'll see other handlers, they'll see the yeah. other dogs. And if you can set up some smaller groups on smaller training days to where the guys don't get together, they don't sit around and uh, the dogs yeah. see all these other things, but rather simply call them up and say, hey, come to this location, we have your scenario ready. And so the dog sees yeah. it almost as, as, as if it were a real call. And uh, exactly. then the dog will not be is um, queued up on the fact that hey, it's training day. We're going to have go, go have fun. Yep. Then when it's the real call, he doesn't understand it. And not all dogs like that, and very few are. Uh, the one I work now, he he needs that setup. He needs to understand that um, yeah. hey, this is the real world. This is how it's going to work, and this is how the training went. So he sees the cops there. Yeah. Okay, I'm I'm engaged. I understand what's going on. Yeah. Well, I think just like like you uh, alluded to earlier, um, you know, getting calls from from people that help them. I get calls a lot. Real common call I'll get is people having trouble with their dogs releasing, and they'll tell me that he's fine in in uh, training. But in training, it's exactly that. They go to the same training field. It's on a training day. The dogs are all around. They know that that's the day that it's you know going to be black and white with the handler, and they're going to enforce the the release in whatever way they have. And then they go out on a certification to a different area, different decoys, different everything. And they haven't shaped the dog's behavior. They've just uh, trained him for that one area. Um, so he'll release there, but not somewhere else. So I know that happens also, you know, in scenario training where, yeah. um, like you say, they, they're, they're used to the training day. So they're, you're not getting the real product. Then you're getting a kind of a pumped up dog. That's right. That's exactly it. So, well, those are all outstanding, uh, suggestions and I'll put, uh, your email and my email in our show notes. Um, both you and I, obviously, we welcome any phone calls, any emails. 
uh, we're both real passionate about these subjects. So we're happy to, to, uh, uh, you know, help anybody who's got some questions or if in a later show you want to, uh, throw out some questions, we do our question and answer shows, or if you have a subject that you think deserves a whole show, send me an email and we'll be able to uh, devote a show to it. Cause if, uh, if somebody out there has a, a specific suggestion, probably a lot of people want to hear about it. So we'd be happy to do that. Um, I'll wrap up today with, uh, just a, maybe a minute or two about hits, uh, Jeff is the person, everybody, all four of us that are involved in HITS, we all have different uh, responsibilities. And Jeff is the one who handles all of our registrations and our books and stuff. And I was talking to him earlier. It sounds like registrations are going fantastic. Is that right? Yeah, Jeff? for as early as it is and before, uh, usually the uh, registrations really start kicking in before July 1st when the price goes up some. And uh, July 1st is uh, some of the folks around the nation's new budget year. And so we yeah. start to see more. But it's incredible how many people's already signed up. I didn't realize how many dogs was in that part of the country around Chicago, the surrounding states. People have really been signing up for this, this year's conference. Yeah, I'm excited. I think this will be our, our biggest one yet. Chicago, August 13th. And this year's sponsor, it's uh, Yukonuba is our sponsor, and then we have a hundred other vendors that are going to be there. So we're real excited about it. Hopefully, uh, everybody listening can go to our website hitsk9.net. Check I think it this out. This year we've had uh, hopefully we'll see the largest vendor platform that we've ever had. Yes, it's amazing how many booths yeah. we have. Of course, we have the McCormick Center. You know, plenty of space. There. Yeah, we have plenty of room this year. So. Uh, I did get that question uh, just uh, last week was, uh, do we still have room? And uh, with the amount of area that we have this year, we can accommodate uh, just as about as many registrations as, as possible. Yeah, I think so we're down to... Uh, don't hesitate. Two, maybe just one. Two. Uh, I saw an email. Yeah. Vendors. Somebody was asking about a booth. Yeah. But as far as, as attendees... Uh, I, we can accommodate as many as want to come, probably. We should be well over a thousand, I'm sure. Yeah, that's it's going to be a, a good time. I thought last year was great, but yeah. I think Chicago is going to be even better. So. It's shaping up to be, for sure. Well, Jeff, I appreciate your time today. Um, we will touch base with you more after we get a little feedback on this. Uh, We'll probably do a show maybe if we get a couple of follow-up questions and we'll dedicate a show to the questions or or to a whole subject so i appreciate you jumping on today and uh everybody be safe out there and we'll talk to you soon Jeff. Thanks. thank you talk to you next time hits radio is brought to you by the professionals at hits training and consulting don't miss out on the world's largest law enforcement canine training conference coming to the mccormick center in chicago illinois this august HITS has the most diverse class schedule to fit your training needs. And with over 100 vendors, you'll find everything you need to gear up for your next shift. Register today and save at www.hitscanine.net.